Hey everyone, welcome back to the Romans series. This is our last part and it's going to be called Love Over Law. This topic is huge. It's been so um, profound in my life and the way that it shaped my ability to relate to God, how I walk with God, how I engage with Him. Um, just every part of my relationship has been shaped by understanding this concept of love over law. Um, and so I really hope you enjoy it. No announcements for you this week. And so just enjoy the podcast. Okay. So um, we have a lot of the different ups and downs and different objections to um, to kind of this unraveling of the law, not living under the law. And, um, and one of those is um, the, the concept, well, well, Jesus didn't tell us to get rid of the law. Uh, you know, so like, yeah, okay, you can say this, you can say that, but like, and all, the, all the, the apostles can say this about the law, but what did Jesus say about the law? And actually, Jesus didn't say much about the law at all, actually. He only really talks about it a couple of times. Um, and we have to, as well, keep in context that Jesus frequently broke the law. And that's really interesting. I mean, we, 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 it's quite interesting. So again, we, we wrap up law with sin, right? So Jews breaking the law equals a sin, not you know doing the laws equals righteousness. But Jesus was without sin, but actually he would have broken some laws sometimes. And that's really interesting. And in fact, he contradicts some of the laws, right? We talked about that the other day when we were talking about the evolution of, of, of um, of our understanding of God. And, you know, Jesus would say, well, you've heard it said in the law this, but I say this, you know? So you've heard it said, an eye for an eye, but I say turn the other cheek. And so he's, he's, he's undoing some of the law. He's, 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 he's evolving the law. He's evolving the image of who God is and who we are as people. But he, do, he does mention the law. And in, in, in the key um, place he talks about law, he says, look, um, he says, not one jot or tittle will pass away Without the law, you know you can't. Every uh, every element of the law is required. Every element of the law, one jot or tittle, will pass away until the end of the year, end, end of the age, end of the world. And um, now there's an element of understanding that not one jot or tittle will pass away until the end of the age, end of the world. But we just talked about actually the end, 70 AD was in one sense the end of the age. It was the end of the Jewish system. It was the end of the world as they knew it. And so you could uh, argue that that would be an interpretation to say, well. The age ended, and so not one jot or tittle will pass away, but now it has. It has ended. Um, another way to look at it, though, as well, and I think this is very reasonable, um, is he says, look, not one jot or tittle will pass away until the end of the age, um, and anyone who who reduces the standard of the law will be judged severely. Um, he says that, doesn't he? And it's quite a stern thing. It's like, whoa, whoa, maybe I should change my message, eh? Um, but like, what's he saying? Not, he's not saying you should do it. He's just saying. The law standard is not going to change. The law standard will always be up here. And this kind of takes us back to, remember in 1 Timothy, and I said, 1 Timothy uh, 1.8, the law is good in the right context. And then we said it's for the unrighteous, not the righteous. And so Jesus is saying the law isn't going to pass away and don't lower the standard of the law. Don't teach a lower standard of law. And a lot of people would say, well, that's what you're doing when you say I can eat bacon or I can get a tattoo or this or that or whatever. You're, you're lowering the standard of the law. Jesus said, don't do that. And I'm saying, that's not what I'm saying because what I'm saying is the law stands. The law is still there. It's there for the unrighteous. It's there for whoever wants to try and do it themselves. And so this is really how I would ultimately group the righteous and unrighteous. Righteous are those that accept that God is with them and want to walk with him and, and, and live the we life and not the me life. The unrighteous is those that go, it's me, myself, and I, and we're going to do it on my own, or I'm going to do it on my own. And that's an unrighteous lifestyle. And you know what you need when you do it on your own? 
You need some guidelines, some rules, some laws. And so if you're going to let people do that, if people come to you and go, well, I don't need God, I don't need any of this stuff, like I'm going to do it myself, then reducing the standard of the law, if you do turn around to go, well, I'll do whatever God tells me to do, uh, just I'll go do it myself, then you don't want to reduce that standard, right? Because if you reduce the standard, what might happen? You might actually somehow miraculously do it, right? So if I said, okay, you've got the Ten Commandments, and I said, um, all right, don't break any of the Ten Commandments today, and you're guaranteed a spot in heaven. What are you thinking? You're like, mm. first of all, I bet you're thinking, I don't actually know what all the Ten Commandments are, right? But then after that, you're thinking, oh, well, actually, mm, I don't know if I could do that, because some of those Ten Commandments are quite hard, right? I mean, there's like, don't kill. It's like, I could probably do that. I think I can get through the day, right? Don't commit adultery. Ah, probably, probably able to do that in one day. But like, as you move on, you're like, oh, actually, that's a bit harder, not doing that one or not doing that one. And it's, it's, it's hard to, to keep the law. We've, we've covered that, right? But if I was to say, all right, we'll get rid of all, the, the, all of them apart from do not kill. If you don't kill, you'll be fine. What are you thinking? I reckon I'll be all right. Yeah, like, it's like, all right, I mean, like, this is occasionally the moment here or there where I want to throttle someone, but I think I'll be all right. I don't, I think I'll be fine. And maybe I, I'll double check when I'm driving my car, you know, like there's a small family crossing the road or something. I don't want to kill anyone, uh, but you know, well, I'll be fine. Um, and so there's this element of, you don't want to reduce the law because it has a purpose. The law drives us to our knees when we realize I can't do this on my own. I need help. So I can't do this operating on the me life. I need a we, I need help, I need someone to step in, I need God's grace, I need him to help me, to show me, to speak to me, to guide me, and to live that way, because then I won't need the law at all, and I'll be above and, and beyond the law. Um, and so I think it's important when we look at what Jesus is saying there, he's not saying you're not allowed to live apart from the law, he's just saying you're not allowed to remove the law and get rid of it and, and, and say it's, it's, uh, it's not true. Um, and so this is what the, the, the apostles are doing when they're writing. They're saying, oh, the law is good, perfect, and holy, and it has a place. But it, its place is never to make you good, perfect, or holy. It's like um, that Romans 3.20 passage where it says the law reveals sin but can't fix it. Right? So it's like a mirror, isn't it? When you give the law to someone, it's just a mirror that you go, oh, crap. Oh, this isn't good. Um, and so, but you can't clean yourself with a mirror. Right? So you don't clean yourself with the law. The law just shows you you need cleaned. Um, it reveals the sin, but cannot fix the sin. And so that's a really important part. And then the other element, uh, the other place that Jesus talks about the law, it, it's really quite interesting, is um, uh, someone comes to him and says, hey, what do you think is the most important law? Which is the most important law, Jesus? And Jesus says, well, what do you think it is, right? And he says, well, I think it's love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and all your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus was saying, that's two, right? He didn't. Um, he said, that's great. Well done, right? Love the Lord your God and love your neighbor. Um, and he says, and what did he say? He says, all of the law is encapsulated in this one commandment. Now, what do we take apart from that? We take away that, right, that's what I'm supposed to do. I'm supposed to love the Lord my God with all my heart, with all my soul, all my strength, all my mind, and love my neighbor as myself. Now, if I say that to you, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and all your strength, how do you feel? How have you got done so far today on that one? If you love God with everything in you, all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength, yeah, you feel pretty confident. You're like, I could tick that box. Probably not, right? If we're honest, like, there's probably something in us at some point that was being divided or interest has been somewhere else. Or, you know, I've, I've not been fixated on loving God with everything I've got and every second of every moment. Like, 
it's actually not the most encouraging passage in the Bible, is it? Most of the time you read that, you think, oh, I do not love God enough. And actually, you know what I've discovered? I travel all over the world. I've been to well over a thousand churches. And, and everywhere I travel, I find a common uh, train of thought, a common thought that is in believers' minds. And it's one of the most pervasive thoughts. It's one of the most invasive, hard uh, thoughts that people struggle with. And it's not uh, why do uh, people not get healed, or it's not why is this happening, or why is this suffering, but actually one of the most pervasive thoughts that people have in their head is, I know I don't love God enough. How do I love him more? People constantly struggling with, I, I know that he wants me to love him more, and I know I should be able to love him more, but I just don't know how to love him more. And it's constantly in people, and everyone I talk to, there seems to be this pervasive thought in, in Christians' minds of like, and where does it come from? It comes from, we know, Jesus says, love the Lord your God with all of your heart, all of your soul, all of your mind, and all of your strength. And so we think, oh, that's what I've got to do, and that's what I want to do, right? I mean, we want to do that, right? There's no, none of us in the room go, eh, I don't really want to do that. We want to desperately, but, but we know that, oh, I just don't, I don't, I don't know how to do that. I, desperately want to love him more than I do because we know on some level I can love him more than I'm loving him just now. I, I've, there's more of me that I, I can give. I can give more of my love, my affection to God than I'm currently giving. And so actually it's quite a discouraging uh, thing, isn't it? When you go, well, never mind all these laws, just you focus on love the Lord your God with all your soul, with all your heart, with all your mind. And you kind of go, yeah, well, I can't do that either. And I think this is what Jesus is getting at. <laughs> You see, the guy says, what's the best law? What's the most important law? And, and he says, is it this? And Jesus says, yes. He says, that is the greatest commandment. And all of the law is summed up in that one commandment. But what's the point? It doesn't mean do it, right? What is the law? Who is it for? The unrighteous is for those that are trying to do it themselves. So if you're going to try and do it yourself, Jesus says, look, if you want to do this, if you want to know what the best law is and how to please God, you go love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, all your strength. And you go and you try and you realize, I can't do this. I don't know how to love him with everything in me. I, I still split interests and I've got different ideas and I've got different desires. and I don't know how to do this. And again, it serves like the whole law. It serves the purpose of you going, I can't do this, I give up. I need help, I need God's grace. And so it's really important that even that you don't make into a law that you put yourself under. You see, it doesn't matter. The law, whether it's, you see it as good or bad, is kind of irrelevant. Even the best law is still law. It's still something that you will try and do in and off your own strength. And so actually, even love the Lord your, your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, with all your strength, is actually something that's going to cause you to have bondage, not freedom. Because you're trying to love God and you just can't. And actually, John talks about this, doesn't he? In John's letter, 1 John, uh, it says in uh, chapter 4, I think it's verse uh, 16, says, we know and believe that God loves us. And I love that he separates that. Have you ever thought of that? How he separates, we know and believe that God loves us. So something about knowing God loves you and there's another thing about believing God loves you. You know, there's no one in the world that doesn't know God loves you. You go out in, into the UK, I guarantee there's not a person on the street that hasn't heard the message, God loves you. All the Christians are, God loves you, God loves you, God loves you. Now, the difference is, do you believe it? Do you actually believe that God loves you? 
Because you can know what they're all saying, and they're saying, oh, God loves you, God loves you, God loves you. But actually, it's only when you believe. There's something about we know and believe it. Um, it's not just a message that's been told us, but it's a message we've believed, we've embraced, we've, we, it's become a reality. But later, just after that, it says, we know and believe that God loves us. And, and, it, and then it says, and this is how we love. Not that we love God, but that God loves us. And you see, you can only love God because God has loved you. And you see, it's not about me, it's about we. It's not about me trying to love God, it's about me receiving his love in that relationship, in that union, in that we reality. And in that place, what happens? All of a sudden I find I can love God with all of my heart, all of my soul, all of my strength, all of my mind. Because it's not about me trying to love God, it's about me experiencing an overflow of being loved. I, I'm loved, he loves me, and in that place, my response is, it's not about I'm trying to, fit, to do a law. It's not about, oh, he told me to love him with everything I've got, so I'll try. It's a thing of, wow, he loves me. I love him too. And it's just a response. It, you, it's not about I'm trying to love God. It's about I just naturally love God in response. And actually, see, this is what John's uh, letter like, is fixated on, is love. How we love each other, how we love God. It's all founded in being loved by God. And he, so he goes on and on about it. But actually, this is why I quite like the Gospel of John as well, is it revolves around this concept of love. It's, 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 it's like the love gospel. You know, if you could break up the gospels into different people groups and focuses and, and messages, the Gospel of John is amazing because it just fixates on a, a God who is love, a Jesus who reveals God as love. Um, and obviously, all the gospels do that, but this, it hones in on it. And in the gospel, it's quite interesting. Have you ever noticed in the gospel that Jesus has favorites? Does that ever mess with you a little bit? So you ever thought about the fact, I mean, we talked about, uh, actually, did we? No, somewhere else I was speaking recently. Um, but we talked about, you know, have you ever thought about the 13th guy that came along and said, hey, Jesus, can I, uh, can I join you guys? And he's like, I'm at 12. Sorry, mate. I mean, because it's not like nobody else wanted to follow Jesus. But he had 12 disciples. And he's like, these are my 12 guys. Sorry. I mean, that's kind of crazy, right? I mean, if you, if you stop and think about it. But Jesus X, Y, Z. I don't know. I don't have an answer. Did he have a certain amount that he was willing to invest in and, and give all his attention? And he said, look, I'm, I'm happy to te- preach to 72. I'm happy to preach to 150. I'm happy to preach to the multitudes. But actually, behind closed doors, I've only got the time and the ability to invest in 12. And that's more than enough to change the world. I mean, is that what it was? We don't know why he picked 12, why he picked this or that. But what's interesting is, so you've got, I mean, the 72 he sent out to heal and, and to cleanse uh, lepers and to uh, cast out demons and stuff. And they went out and did that, didn't they? And so it was obviously more people than 12 following him that were quite, uh, um, that were discipled on some level by him and equipped to do what he was doing. Uh, there was uh, the, you know, um, the people that were in the upper room, you know, there's a, you know, 100 plus, you know, that's, that's amazing. So there's, there's, you know, there's another group of core people that believed in him. There's uh, the thousands that uh, appeared, uh, that followed him after he was resurrected. There's the multitudes that followed him throughout his ministry. And so the, he's got lots of people that are following, but there seems to be like this, the, the smaller the group gets, the more intimate they are. And have you ever noticed that there's the three, you know, you've got um, Peter, James, and John always seem to be in the cool stuff. Right, so like one day Peter's like, uh, Jesus is like, hey, let's uh, we, let's go up this mountain. I'm gonna head up this mountain. Um, you all just stay here. Um, I'm just gonna go up for the evening. Uh, so everyone stay here. Uh, Peter, James, John, you come with me. 
And everyone's like, oh, okay, yeah. And they're like, kind of looking at Peter and James. And like, they always seem to get to go with Jesus. It's so unfair. Never mind. Whatever. You know? And so they, they head off up the mountain. Peter, James, and John go up the mountain with Jesus. And, um, and then, boom, amazing, miraculous. I mean, you know, Moses shows up. And like, I mean, it's pretty cool. God shows up in the flat. God shows up. And, and, and Peter's all like, let's build a tabernacle here. You know I mean, he's like freaking out. And Jesus is like, no, no, no. And then they come back the next day, don't they? And Jesus is like glowing like a light bulb. And, and, and you can imagine, can you imagine being the other disciples? So you've got nine guys sitting around and they spent the evening hanging out at the bottom of the, the thing. Maybe they had some dinner and then they slept for the night and then they woke up in the morning. They're maybe cooking up some breakfast. And the three guys come down the mountain with Jesus. And uh, we know enough of, of these disciples that they're pretty rash. I mean, like John and James are like described as the sons of thunder, aren't they? And they're arguing with who gets to sit at the right hand of Jesus in heaven. And, um, and then, uh, you know, you've got Peter. I mean, he's pretty rash. He is always like jumping out of boats and doing this and doing that. I mean, like, we know these guys are like, they're, they're up for it. They're rough around the edges. They're not polished, clean, sophisticated gentlemen. You know, they're, 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 they're up for it. Um, and so you, I, I don't know about you, but I can imagine very easily these guys are coming down the mountain and they have a swagger. You know, they are like, oh, hey, guys, how was your night? You know, I mean, like, because these like, nine guys have been sitting there and they're like, what did you get up to last night? And they're like, oh, you know, we just hung out and we just chatted. We told some stories or whatever. And they're like, oh, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Well, our night was good, too. Yeah. Um, we went up the mountain and uh, don't mind Jesus. He's glowing like a light bulb, but that's only because God showed up. Uh, there was God there. And also there was this other guy. You've maybe heard of him. He's in your Bible, uh, Moses. And, uh, and uh, you know, can you imagine? Like they, they have like experienced some cool stuff. And you've got to be the other nine disciples thinking, man, that kind of sucks, right? You're like, that's amazing. But it also looks like, seriously, when I get to go up, I mean, what, is there not enough room on a mountain for 12 people? Like, do you know what I mean? Like, um, you got to be like, come on, that's not fair. And then, you know, you got the other story. Uh, one day um, they're doing some bits and pieces and a guy comes and says, Jesus, come heal my daughter. And so they go and there's ups and downs along the way. And eventually they get to the daughter. The daughter's dead. She's in a room. She's dead. And Jesus is like, no, nah, she's just sleeping because he's really insensitive. Um, and so... Eventually, he goes in. He's like, right, well, let's go get her. Uh, let's go wake her up. And, uh, and everyone's crying and wailing. And he's like, all right, everyone stay here. Uh, Peter, James, John, you come with me. And you can immediately feel the other nine disciples going, really? Not, you know, like Peter, James, Timothy? You know? <laughs> no? Maybe Philip? Maybe Andrew? You know, one of us? Maybe Jesus? No? Nope. Peter, James, John, you come with me. And you're like, what the heck, right? Um, and so they go in. And, you know, a few minutes later, a dead girl comes running out, Right? And she's like, has anyone got any food? And you're like, whoa, that's crazy. Next person I guarantee that came out was either Peter, James, or John, and they had their swagger on again, right? You know, you know they come out and they're like, oh, hey, guys, uh, did you see the dead girl run by? Yeah, yeah. No, she, no Jesus raised her from the dead. No, you kind of had to be there. No, no. You know, like, you know they are like, oh, yeah, we got to see someone get raised from the dead. Um, and you know they're teasing, like, Andrew and Philip and these guys. Oh, Bartholomew, how many, how many uh, kids have you, been, yeah, have you seen raised from the dead? Oh, none? Well, I'm on one right now, but, uh, you know, I'm sure Jesus will take us in and heal some more people, you know. I mean, come on, like, you've got to be thinking, this isn't fair. I mean, does this ever kind of like, you ever notice these things in the Bible? I love reading stuff like this, because I'm always wondering, what would I have been like? Because if I was, if I was Philip, or I was Andrew, or whatever, I would be like, 
come on, how come I don't get to see this stuff? This is so unfair. Um, but then there's this whole other element of favoritism that seems to be in, in, in the gospel that you see there's the disciple whom Jesus loved. And so you've got, you know, Philip and Andrew and James and John and uh, James and Peter and all these guys. And then you've got the disciple whom Jesus loved. And what's he called? John. John is the disciple whom Jesus loved. Now, John, in the gospel of John, is the disciple whom Jesus loved. Do you know what he's called in Matthew, Mark, and Luke? John. (laughs) Matthew, Mark, and Luke called John, John. (laughs) John called himself the disciple whom Jesus loved. You know, it's like, you're like, can I trust this? You know, like, are you really his favorite? And, and I don't think it's actually about him saying, I'm God's favorite or I'm Jesus's favorite. I don't think he's saying that. Maybe he is. I don't know. Uh, but I don't think it is that. I actually think he's, he's grabbing a hold of something that says, I'm loved. I was, I, this disciple, I knew for myself. I don't know about the others, but I knew I am loved by Jesus and I'm the disciple he loves. And, and he personifies God's love for himself. You know, and this is the same John that says God so loved the whole world. He doesn't think that Jesus doesn't love, you know, Peter or Andrew or any of these other guys, but he goes, Jesus loves me. I'm the disciple he loves. And so he's writing his story of what Jesus's life was like. And the whole way through when he mentions himself, oh, he loves me. I'm loved by him. And this is why you can understand when he goes on to write his letters, he's talking about God's love for us over and over and over. But what's interesting is each time it mentions the disciple whom Jesus loved, it says that phrase five times, and it's in four different passages. Each time, there's a contrast that goes on. You see, the contrast is with Peter. And it's really interesting. And, and so the first time it appears is in the Last Supper. And so they're sitting at the Last Supper, um, and I'm going to paint the picture of the Last Supper using all four gospel accounts, if that makes sense. So I'm not going to give you the exact rundown in the Gospel of John or the Gospel of Matthew. I'm kind of going to give you what happens according to all four of the Gospels in one kind of story. But, you know, so they're sitting down and they're in the perfect row, you know, the lineup, you know, six on one side, six on the other, Jesus in the middle, all ready for the picture. Um, and, uh, <laughs> and so, you know, they go into the place and like, uh, table for 13, please. <laughs> Actually, maybe get a table for 26. We want to sit on one side. Um, no. <laughs> so they, they're sitting down at a table, okay? So it's not a big table, right? I mean, there's only 13 of them there. It's not, you know, so it's a nice, intimate, lovely meal. They're enjoying the Passover. Um, historically, probably, the woman probably would have been with them, but we don't like that because it doesn't explicitly say that in the story, so we better not add it. But So let's just say for the story's sake, there's 13. Maybe, maybe there's as many as 20 or so people. We don't know. Um, but yeah, so they're sitting down, they're having their meal and they're enjoying their meal and they're doing the Passover ritual. You know, they've got the bread and the blood and Jesus does the whole thing of like, hey, this is my body and this is my blood and all this different stuff. And he explains this and then they're, they're having a nice meal. You know, they're enjoying their meal. They're having fun. They're probably laughing. They're probably bantering and, and you know, and all that different stuff. Hey, Jesus, remember that time you healed this person and whatever. And uh, remember that time we saw that girl get raised from the dead? Well, you guys don't, <laughs> you know, or whatever. This, they're probably just having fun and engaging, but they're also having a, a spiritual encounter as well. It's a Passover meal. It's a remembrance meal. And Jesus is totally taking it in a new way. He's talking about his blood and his body and a new covenant. So it's it's quite a profound time as well. But right in the middle of the meal, Jesus decides to just ruin everything because that's what Jesus does. He ruins the vibe. And he's like, you know, he gets his glass up and he's like, tink, 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 tink. All right, guys, got a little announcement. Um, One of you is going to kill me. You're going to betray me and I'm going to die because of it. All right, should we move to dessert? (laughs) 
that's like a, you've ruined the mood, Jesus. You really ruined our little party. You know, we were having a nice, like, guy's night in, enjoying some bread and some wine, because that's all they ate, um, bread. Um, but, like, you know, we're just having our meal, and then you're like, oh, what if he's going to kill me? Right? I mean, that's a brutal, rubbish, party-ruining message. One of you is going to betray me, and I'm going to die tonight. Oh, ah. Uh. That's not ideal. And so you look at that, and it's this pretty, pretty awkward moment, right? I mean, this is a pretty awkward moment. And in this moment, it talks about that the disciple whom Jesus loved was laying there with his head on his chest, just relaxed, and then just enjoying that I'm the disciple whom Jesus loved. He's chilling out. Um, now, the other person that comes into play is Peter jumps up at this point, doesn't he? He jumps up and he says, I won't betray you, you know? He says, it won't be me. I love you. I'm, I wouldn't betray you, Jesus. Who will it be? You know, he's, he's like wondering, who's it going to be? But he's like, I, it won't be me. Um, and they're grumbling and muttering amongst themselves, aren't they? Of like, well, who will it be? Who would betray him? I don't know. Oh, oh, oh. It was quite funny, right? They mean, three and a half years with Judas and they never saw this coming. Um, he must have been pretty good at keeping it undercover. But, but anyway, but, but Peter is very adamant. I won't betray you. And yet what's interesting is, who's the person that betrays him aside from Judas? Peter. You see, there's an element here which is really interesting where you have the disciple whom Jesus loved is contrasted along with another disciple. Now, it's not to say that, Jesus, that Peter wasn't loved. He, he, of course he was loved. God loved the whole world. Jesus loved his disciples, obviously. And Peter later, is, is, he goes on and on about God's love. But there's an element of Peter saying, I, I won't betray you. What's he doing? Where is he? He's over in me territory, isn't he? <laughs> I wouldn't do it because I love you is the implication, right? I love you. I, I, well, why would I betray you? I love you. But I love you and I won't betray you. Where does I get you? Where does me get you? Is when the going gets hard a few hours later, you realize, actually, I'm quite happy to deny Jesus if it means I'm going to save my own skin. Whereas John, the disciple whom Jesus loved, how did he go with Jesus? The, the tradition says that he actually stayed with Jesus throughout the whole process, through his trials and through everything he was there. Now, the, the Bible doesn't say that, so we don't know. That's, that's more through um, the, the, um, the traditional text, the, um, the passion text and different things like that. And so we don't know for sure that he did. What we do know is he was there at the cross. We do know that when Jesus, in probably his hardest moment in his life, is standing there or standing, he's hanging there on a cross, he's dying. He's, he's been tortured for an extended period of time. He's hanging on a cross. It's beating down sun. He's bleeding to death. He's suffocating to death. I mean, this is what the cross did, and it suffocated you. And he's hanging there, and he looks down, and he sees his mom. And he says, John, can you look after my mom when I'm gone? I mean, can you, can you feel the humanity of Jesus in that moment? I mean, that is Jesus at his, his most human in one sense, right? And his, his biggest need, like, you never see Jesus need something more than in that moment. I'm sure at different times he asked his disciples, hey, can you get some food? Hey, can you do this? Hey, can you do it? Go get the donkey. Go do this. You know, he asked his disciples to do things. But in that moment, you're like, oh, Jesus really wanted something from us. He really wanted someone to help him, to, to give him something. He really wanted someone to love him. And who was able to love Jesus the most? The disciple whom Jesus loved. 
Not the disciple that was trusting, I love Jesus, I would never betray Jesus, I would never let him down. But instead, it's the disciple whom Jesus loved was the one that stayed with him throughout, that was there to love him, to respond to him, to help him, to aid him, to serve him. Another thing we see at the, the, the Passover meal that's really interesting, really interesting, is they're all discussing and they're thinking, well, who will it be? What do you think? Oh, I don't know. Blah, 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 right? Which is quite a funny thing. You know, can, you, can you imagine Jesus is kind of sitting there smirking, going, God, this is kind of fun, right? Because it kind of probably was on level. So on one level, I mean, like you've got Jesus in the garden saying, oh, please don't make this happen or whatever. But I mean, he's just made this big announcement. One of you's going to betray me. And they're all like, oh, who's it going to be? Who's going to be? You kind of sitting there. He knows who it's going to be, right? Because he tells them later. You know, so he knows who it is. So he's just kind of watching him freak out and all of that. You can imagine him just thinking, wow, these guys are really like panicking. Um, and what's interesting is, what does it say? It says, Peter asks, and then it uses this phrase again, the disciple whom Jesus loved. Ask Jesus who it will be. Have you ever noticed that? Like, it's a weird part of the story, isn't it? Because where's the disciple whom Jesus loved? He's, he's, he's laying on Jesus' chest. Now, at this point, Jesus made an announcement. There's lots of discussion. He's probably not still, like, lying on his chest. He's maybe sitting up. Or, but where was he to be laying on Jesus' chest? Right next to him, right? It's not like he was at the other end of the table. Um, and so he's right next to Jesus. So have you ever noticed how weird it is? Now, this is the same Peter that says, I won't betray you. I wouldn't deny you to Jesus. So he's obviously, Jesus can hear him. I mean, it's not like, you know, an amphitheater and they're sitting on other sides. Or, you know, Jesus can hear him and John is sitting right next to him. And he says, hey, John, ask Jesus who it will be. How weird is that? Why don't you just go, hey, Jesus, who will it be? Have you ever thought about that? That is weird. Like, and I always, like, uh, well, to be honest, I didn't notice it for most of my life. But then one day I read it and I'm like, what? Why did, he, why did he ask John? And I think, again, there's something in the text here where it's contrasting two different types of approaches to who God is. You see, again, you have Peter who's living in the me. He's living, I love God. I'm basing my relationship to God. My relationship to Jesus is based on how much I love him, how much I whatever, how much this, 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 this. So I won't let him down because I love him so much. And then I let him down. But what about he talks to me and he speaks to me because of how much I love him? Well, what's the problem with how much I love him? We always have that doubt. Do I love him enough? Is my love enough? And so then we start to go, well, maybe he won't tell me. Maybe he doesn't speak to me as clearly as he speaks to someone else because they love him more. There's always that niggling doubt. And yet, what does the disciple whom Jesus loved do? John turns to Jesus and says, who will it be? And Jesus says, that guy over there dipping his bread. It's not, even, it's not even a big question. You know, for some reason, Peter's got a big enough question that he can't even ask Jesus himself. He's got to ask John to ask Jesus. John just goes, who's it going to be? And Jesus goes, that guy over there. I mean, it's not even a big deal. Jesus, it's not even like, can you imagine like, it's not like Jesus went, John, I'll tell you later when Peter's not here because I don't want Peter to know, right? It's just, oh, that guy. Like, it's not, it, it, Peter has built this into his head as something that he couldn't ask Jesus when it clearly isn't. Jesus is happy to say. What also fascinates me, it blows my mind that like, they don't all just go, all right, let's just kill this guy or let's tie him up or something, right? I mean, I don't know. He then just sneaks off and runs off, doesn't he? But like, it always kind of baffles me of like, they're like, oh, okay, yeah, he's going to betray him. All right, well, he's, he's leaving now. Uh, okay, yeah, okay, he's gone. Yeah, okay, cool. 
should we continue with dinner? Like, what, what, did they not like, think, let's go get him, let's chase after him? Like, or, I don't know, you know, it's just kind of weird. But anyway, but the, the point being that there's something of, I love God, therefore, X, Y, Z, with a whole bunch of doubt, because I love God comes with a whole bunch of doubt. Whereas John is, I am loved by God, and therefore, why wouldn't he tell me? So John just turns to Jesus and goes, well, I'm the disciple Jesus loves. Jesus loves me. Of course he'll tell me. See, if you base your communication with God based on the me, based on how well I love you, based on how well I am performing, then it's going to bring doubt into your conversation with God. It's going to bring doubt into the relationship with God. We talked about it the other day, didn't we? Where, you know, you, you sin or you mess up and you're almost like even like scared to go ask for forgiveness until you kind of clean yourself up a little bit and then you ask for forgiveness. I mean, it's like, how crazy is that? But that's the whole me life. It's when it's all based on me, I need to get to a certain point at least where I can start communicating. Whereas when it's based on him, when it's based on his love for me, all of a sudden, well, of course God will speak to me. Of course God will share with me his secrets and his desires and all these different things because I'm the one he loves. He loves me. And we see this again throughout the, 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 the book of John. And the next time we see it, it's kind of weird, okay? So I want you to work with me because this is my opinion, okay? This is not the Bible says, okay? This is really isn't because the Bible doesn't really explain this at all. But I think when we look through the book of John and we see John and Peter contrasted consistently, every time it says John, the disciple whom Jesus loved, because other times it refers to John, but when it refers to him as the disciple whom Jesus loved, Peter's around somewhere. Okay, so it's really interesting. It's this contrast. And so the next time you see it is um, Jesus is raised from the dead and he's met the woman and they run off and they're like, oh my gosh, we need to go tell the disciples Jesus is alive. And so they run off and as they run off, they bump into Peter and the disciple whom Jesus loved. Yeah, John. So they bump into these two. And what do they do? They go, ah, my gosh, Jesus, the tomb's empty. And, ah, and they're going absolutely crazy, right? I mean, they're just frantic. It's exciting. It's, it's terrifying. It's scary. It's, it's everything and anything. And they're telling Peter and John, and they just kind of look at each other, and they just run off. Yeah, they run to the tomb. But what does it say? The story is so weird when you stop and think about it, right? It says, now Peter and John heard this message, and Peter and John ran to the tomb. Now, Peter started running first, but John got there first. And you're like, well, John, the disciple we love, got there first. What's he saying? It's like the weirdest bit in the Bible where John's like writing his gospel and he's like, okay, so then, well, then what happens? Oh yeah, we went and ran to the tomb. And he's like, well, I ran faster than Peter, so I better put it down. You know, like, it's like, is he bragging? Is he like, now Peter started first, but I got there first. I mean, that, it reads like that. There's no, there's no explanation, there's nothing, but he just puts that in there. He's like, now Peter set off first, but John, the disciple whom Jesus loved, he got there first. You know, it's like, he was faster. How cool is John? You know, in brackets, I wish John was the king. You know, like, I mean, it's like, John, John, John. <laughs> right, but what's he saying? What's he doing? Is he just bragging? Is he like, this is the time to brag about how fast I am? I don't think so. But I think, again, if we can delve deep, and, and again, give yourself permission to do this, but know this isn't what the Bible is saying categorically, okay? This is my interpretation. This is me looking at this theme throughout the book of John, that every time the disciple whom Jesus loved is mentioned, Peter's mentioned, and there's a contrast between the two, okay? And the contrast between these two is one set off first, but the other still managed to beat them. Now, think about this. Think about the last time you really interacted with Jesus, Jesus says, look, someone's going to betray me and, uh, and I'm going to die. Um, 
And don't worry, I'll be raised from the dead, but they seem to forget that part. I don't know how they forgot that, but anyway, it seems like a key part to remember. But he says, what, some of you is going to betray me. So one of you is going to betray me. And, and, you, and your response was, I will never betray you. I wouldn't betray you. I love you so much, I'll never betray you. Can you imagine? That's your response. And then the next thing you did was deny him. And then you hear, he's alive. Can you imagine what's going on in your head, in your mind? And you're thinking, I mean, you're so excited, right? Because I mean, you do, you love him. Like, there's no question that Peter loved Jesus. The guy was mad about Jesus. He loved him, right? I mean, this is the guy that's like, is that you, Jesus? I'm going to jump in the water and join you. You know what I mean? Like, this guy loved Jesus and loved following Jesus. So it's not questioning, does he love Jesus? So he hears, wow, he's alive. This is exciting. He can't wait. I mean, can you imagine someone you loved that died and came back and you'd be so excited? But can you imagine what's going on in the back of your head as you're running to that tomb? And you're thinking, I'm going to see Jesus. Can you imagine what's going on in your head as you think, I said I would never betray him and actually I totally betrayed him. I denied him. Do you think, will he know that? If he does know it, what's he going to think? I mean, he's got all this stuff going on in his head. Now, what's the other disciple got going on in his head? I'm the disciple Jesus loved. I bet he can't wait to see me. I mean, that's his only thought, right? If you're infatuated with how much you are loved, your response is like, well, of course, they can't wait to see me. I bet you Jesus has been waiting there going, gosh, I can't wait to see John, right? I mean, like, he's just like, he loves me. I mean, he's probably sitting there in the tomb going, man, life, life is so boring without John. I hope he hurries up and gets here. You know what I mean? Like, he's, 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 he's not even thinking of how uh, infatuated he is with Jesus. He, he, there's, this, there's this conscious knowledge of Jesus loves me. And so he has nothing holding him back. He's got nothing hindering him. And this is the thing that the more you rely on your love for God, the more there will be stuff that you allow to hinder your connection to God, to draw something, to, to slow down that, that journey, to slow down that process and that gap. Whereas when your focus is on how much does God love me, when you're fixated on the question, how much does God love me, the gap instantly disappears. There's nothing. There's nothing that holds back and there's nothing that can hold you back. And so then the last time we see it is um, the disciples are out fishing, which they're crap at. Um, it's good they quit, to be honest with you. So as per usual, they've caught no fish. Again, there's never a time where they actually manage to catch fish without Jesus' help. Um, I mean, it's ridiculous. I mean, these guys were professional fishers. I mean, no wonder they found it so easy to change their profession. Um, right? I mean, it's like, come follow me. Stop being fishers. And they're thinking, oh, thank God there's an eruption because we are bad at this. You know? Uh, I'm joking. Um, but you know, So they're out doing fishing, and they're not particularly catching anything, and that's the way it is. And, uh, and someone on the beach shouts out to them, hey, why don't you throw your nets on the other side, right? And, you know, again, like, you could imagine fishers going, yeah, yeah, catch the fishers. But they're probably thinking, oh, great, someone's got another idea. On the other side, let's try that, you know? Um, Probably like throwing it onto the, the sand or something. And, no, I'm joking. But like, you know, so they're like, okay, we'll try it out. But as they try it out, you know, what happens? Peter has this revelation. Oh my gosh, it's Jesus, right? And so he has this re realization, it's Jesus, Jesus. So again, Peter loves Jesus. He's, he's excited about Jesus. And, and what does he do? What does Peter do? It's kind of funny. He jumps in the water and swims to shore. He's so excited, right? So everyone else is like, oh, wow, it's Jesus. That's great. And they're catching loads of fish. And they're like, well, let's get to the shore and go see Jesus. Peter's like, nah, sack that. I'm jumping in and I'm going to swim. He's so excited, right? Um, and you ever notice it's weird? He puts a jacket on before he jumps in the water. Have you ever read that? It explicitly says, Peter put his jacket on, jumped in the water, and swam to shore. And I always think, well, that's not the way I'd do it, right? I mean, do you ever think, like, why is he putting a jacket on to swim? Well, it seems really, really weird. 
Um, so I have an insight on this, and it's very profound, okay? Very, very profound. There's a lot of spiritual depth to this. Um, I don't know if you've heard this before, Rachel, but this is, this is profound, okay? So obviously we remember last time Peter was out in the water, maybe not last time, but one of the last times, um, Jesus was walking on the water, and he said, Peter, come walk on the water. You know, so he goes out and he starts walking the water, but he starts sinking, doesn't he? And then Jesus rescues him. And so I'm wondering if Peter maybe just needs a bit of a sozo. He's had a bit of an upset through this. And, and I don't think it was a regular jacket I think he put on. I think he put a life jacket on. There you go. I'm just joking, but seriously. Come on. <laughs> Boom, wow. No, I don't know. Why, why is he putting a jacket on? I don't know. That's something to ask when you get to heaven. Why did you put a jacket Maybe on to go swimming? Maybe, that's it. Maybe he put his jacket on. It's like, all right, I'm just going to run to him. Oh, oh, swim. Never mind. <laughs> this is awkward. I meant to put, uh, yeah, I've been meaning to swim anyway. I don't know. Um, but anyway, so he puts the jacket on. He swims to shore and he meets with Jesus. And can you imagine? You get to connect and talk to Jesus and have a conversation with him. And again, you've got a lot of stuff going on in your mind. Can you imagine some of the things that you're thinking about? You know, I betrayed this guy. I let him down. Like, is he still going to be able to use me to, to, you know, he said once, he said he'd build my whole church on me. I mean, that's what he said up here, didn't he? He says, I'll build my church on you. On the revelation of I am Messiah, I'll build that on you. And he's thinking, I completely screwed up. I completely let down. And as they're walking along the beach, Jesus has the weirdest conversation in the world with him. Have you ever noticed the conversation? It's weird. He says, hey, Peter, do you love me? And Peter goes, I love you. And he's like, feed my sheep. And then he goes, Peter, do you love me? And he's like, I love you. And he's like, feed my sheep. And he's like, so Peter, do you love me? And he's like, yes, I love you. Ah, feed my sheep. Have you ever read this passage and you just gone like, the hell are these guys having like strokes or something like <laughs> like this is weird it's like groundhog day or something it was just like okay should we do it a few more times jesus peter do you love me yes i love you i'll feed my sheep yes 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 like what, what, what is this it's so weird right but actually when you take it out of um, the english and you go into the greek it makes a lot more sense it makes a lot more sense because actually in the greek there's a few words for love um and and there's two words here that are used and the, the first word that's uh, used is uh, phileo. And phileo is um, the word um, of love of a brother, a very close and real and true love, the kind of love you, you'd have of a really close friend or a brother. You know, you love them, um, and, it's, and it's a passion, it's a strong bond, but it's not perfect, you know? I mean, uh, how perfect is your love for your friend? I mean, it only takes them to do something big enough, and you're like, I'm just angry or upset or whatever. I mean, you know, it's a, it's a love that is strong, it's powerful, but it can be broken. There's, there's, there's moments where it doesn't work out. Um, and then the other word is agape. And this is the word that's used to describe God's love for us. It's unconditional. It's unending. It's unfailing. It's, it's perfect in every way. It's a perfect, spotless love. And uh, it's really interesting that when you look at what the conversation, what happens? Jesus and Peter are walking along the beach. And Jesus turns to Peter and says, hey, Peter, do you agape me? And it's interesting because Peter in the past has said, I love you so much. And the word he uses is agape. I love you with everything I've got unconditionally, never failing. I love you. You know, this is what he was basing. I will never deny you. I'll never let you down because I love you so much. I agape you. And Jesus turns to him. Can you imagine? And says, hey, Peter, how's that agape working out for you? Oh, ah, ah, hmm. Well, and so how does he respond? Peter actually responds and he says, well, he says, Lord, you know 
I phileo you. I love you like a brother. I love you deeply as a friend, as a brother. But he, he's changed his tune. Peter isn't boasting about his unconditional, never-failing, never-ceasing love anymore, is he? He's saying, I love you like a brother. I have a passionate, deep, it's a real love. It is a real love. But it's not perfect, as Peter has found out. And he says, feed my sheep. And that's really profound, isn't it? Because he's saying, hey, do you love me with everything, all you've got, all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength? And Peter says, no, but I really do love you. Right? That's basically, if we look into it, that's what he's saying. And what does he say? That's okay. Feed my sheep. You're still used by me. I'm still going to use you. I'm still going to use you to feed my sheep. And he says, but Peter, do you agape me? Do you love me with all of your heart and your soul and your mind and your strength? And what does he say? Lord, I have philo for you. That's all I have. And he says, feed my sheep. And then he says, Peter, do you have this philo love for me? Is that what you have? Do you have philo? And he says, yes, that's what I have. I have philo. And he says, well, feed my sheep. And what's Jesus saying here? You know, a lot of people say, well, Jesus asked him, do you love me three times because he denied him three times. And, and you know, there's a parallel there. Absolutely. I think that's not uh, to be thrown away quickly. But I think there's something much deeper going on here. That is, he's teaching Peter, it's just not about how much you love me. Yeah. And actually, the amount you love me doesn't matter. You can still be used to feed my sheep. It's not about how much have you got. It's about how much I love you. And actually, it goes on and it says, um, it says that this talks of how Peter would then go on to die. And, and it says in the text, it prophesies about it. Um, but I think there's a right there, right then moment that this would have meant something quite significant to Peter as well. And it says, Peter, when you were young, you picked yourself up and you dressed yourself and you went where you wanted to go. But as you grow old, someone else will pick you up and someone else will take you where you need to go. And I think, so yes, it speaks of his death. It speaks of his freedom and then his, his bondage and how he would end up dying. But I think it speaks of right now. When you were young, you did things your way, how you wanted to do, and you relied on yourself. But as you mature, now that you've grown a bit older, you're realizing that's not the way. You're going to let someone else pick you up. You're going to let someone else guide you. You're going to let someone else lead you. You see, it's not about your love. It's about my love. It's not about you doing things. It's about us doing things. And this is the same Peter. If you read Peter 1, and, uh, 1 Peter and 2 Peter, you read those two letters. He goes on nine different tangents, just randomly, out of nowhere. They don't even make sense. Like, they're completely random. They're not connected to what he's talking about. And he just goes, man, God loves us so much, doesn't he? He's just like, God's love for us is incredible. Oh, my gosh, we're so loved by God. I'm loved by God. You're loved by God. God's love's amazing. This is Peter, the disciple who didn't know he was loved, but instead thought it was all about his love for God. He has now become a disciple who truly knows I'm loved by God and he's bragging about it and screaming from it rooftops. He can't even write a letter without getting distracted and talking about how much God loves him. And so I think this is where I want you to go with this law thing is it, even the best law of all, go love God with everything you've got, it's still not a good thing for you to be under because you can't live under a law. You're not made to live under a law. You're made to live in freedom with 
this person with God. He equips you. He develops you. He leads you. The Spirit will fulfill all that is good and never go do bad. God, who, if you do what He's doing and you say what He's saying, you're never going to do what's bad. You're going to do what's good. It's all about receiving His love, knowing you're loved, embracing His love for you. And in that place, you will love God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind. And in that place, you'll find freedom from the law, from doing what's right and what's doing what's wrong, and actually find that you can do the right thing. All right, that was love over law. I really hope you enjoyed that. Um, hope it spoke to you. Hope it challenged you to um, reevaluate some things about how you connect with God. Um, question, are there areas in my life where um, I am making it about my love for God rather than God's love for me? Um, and just take some time. Just take some time to just, I don't know, whatever methods you have for me I like to lie on the floor and just let God talk to me let God speak to me maybe I'll put some instrumental music on or some Christian worship music on um, whatever works for you to allow God to just lavish you with his love um, just encourage you to spend some time this week doing that and, and just recentering, refocusing on the fact that you are loved you're accepted he delights in you. And from that place, just watch love bubble up out of you. Watch your love for God overflow. Watch your love for other people overflow. And um, watch you learn to love yourself as well. It's, it's a powerful truth that when you understand how much God loves you, you, you start to learn to, to love who you are as well. Um, and so, yeah, I really hope that that blessed you, that enjoy, uh, uh, helped you, you enjoyed it. Um, as always, please shoot me a message if you have any questions or thoughts or um, it spoke to you in a certain way you'd like to share. Um, you can message me over on my Facebook page, on Instagram. You can shoot me an email, whatever works for you. Um, I've been working really hard the last couple of uh, months now on the new module for the Grace Course, which is going to be on sex, sexuality, and gender. And uh, I, I'm just so excited about this new module. And if you have questions regarding that topic as well, I'd love to hear from you. Um, it, it would help me in how I shape this course. I want to I shape it to be a, a go-to resource for all kinds of Christians in all kinds of places, um, uh, dealing with all kinds of issues and how they approach sex, sexuality, and gender. And so, yeah, please do message me as well if you have something about that. Um, as always, if you want to support The Grace Course, you want to support me in, in this ministry, um, you can head over to thegracecourse.com, become a partner as little as $5 a month, um, can make a huge difference, um, helps me pay the bills, helps me focus on, uh, on what I need to do and helping people and helping people around the world and creating resources that are completely free. Um, and even if you don't want to support me, thegracecourse.com is a great place to go dozens and dozens of videos on all kinds of different topics and of course you get to watch the videos that these podcasts are um, if you're more of a visual learner and you want to watch me interview people um, that's a, always a great thing um, as I said earlier we've got a great interview next week with Seth Dahl the former children's pastor at Bethel Church California um, just giving such wisdom on parenting on what does it look like to love the other um, to just um, live in such a Christ-like way he's such a, he's such an amazing guy and you don't want to miss the wisdom that he carries um, even if you're not a parent um, Seth is someone that you just want to listen to because he'll profoundly challenge you um, to be all that you can be and so I will see you next week have a great one